morning to my family here at Brown's Chapel. As a moment of pastoral privilege, let me take this opportunity to not only greet you, uh, but to say how very excited Randy and I are to be uh, making this new journey with you. We have anticipated this for quite a while, and the day is finally here. And what a gorgeous and beautiful day that God has blessed us with. And we are very excited to begin this new chapter of our lives with you. Let me also take this moment to say how very grateful and appreciative I am to so many of you. One of the things that I have discovered so far is that there are some incredible people that belong to this church. And I want to take a few moments to be appreciative to a few of them. To Lynn and Rhonda, I am, Randy and I am more than grateful to you for your hospitality for your generosity towards us, and for the excellent leadership, Lynn, that you have given in the interim. So I just wanted to start off by doing that. Let me thank John Crisp, who has been incredibly resourceful in getting me all set up here. And um, to Julie Schroep, she is an incredible assistant. I don't know where she finds the energy. I don't know where she finds the talent, but she really is. And I'm truly grateful to her for the great work that she is doing uh, here amongst you. Again, we're very excited to be here. It's going to take a while for us to learn a number of things, to learn names and and processes, so we uh, appreciate your patience that you will exhibit towards us. But again, Randy and I are delighted to be here. And why don't you stand, please, Randy, and let everyone see how gorgeous you look this morning. Why don't you do that? <laughs> Man, wow. Randy has been my companion, wife, friend, and so many other things for the better part of 28 years, going on 29, and we are truly blessed. Thank you so much for your prayers for our son, Lijay. Uh, as you heard, he was involved in an accident late Thursday evening, early Friday morning. Uh, he was T-boned as he came to a four-way stop sign by a car that had no lights on. Uh, so the insurance are now battling out exactly who will be responsible for that. So thank you for your prayers. And he escaped without a scratch. If you saw the car, you would wonder how he actually get out, got out of that. Thank you so much for your prayers. Let us take a moment then to, to pray and ask God's blessings on his word. God, as we have been singing, all of the honor and the glory belongs to you. It doesn't belong to any one of us here, but to you. We ask that you would be honored and glorified today, that your word would make you famous, that others would really fear at your word and understand the truth of your word and appreciate it and apply it to our lives. Thankful that your word is timely. Thank you that you know exactly what our needs are, what the needs of this church are. And God, as we have been praying over the last few weeks, we ask that you would show us the lay of the land that is before us. Show us, God, how to tap into the incredible resources that are around us and to spread your kingdom, to spread your name in this part of Indiana. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness in doing that and your faithfulness in blessing your word. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, John, for uh, so eloquently reading our text this morning. So what if my very first sermon to you as your pastor stood out for one thing and one thing only? 
And that was that throughout the sermon, I was weeping and crying and bawling tears. How shocking would that be that at the very outset, the very first Sunday of my tenure here at Brown's Chapel, that would be the defining moment of my message to you. So you are in the company of Jesus, as John said. He is making his way to Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. He and his disciples are. This is the final week before his death. And he comes to the top of the hill overlooking the city. And you are shocked because the very first thing that he does is not overthrow your Roman oppressors. He doesn't overthrow your enemies. The very first thing that he does is that he starts to weep, to weep over your city. Now, one little boy said this, and I quote him, Weeping is different from crying. It involves your whole body, and when you're done, you feel like your bones can't hold you up. Any one of you ever had that experience? That was the experience of that little boy. Now, why is Jesus weeping? He's weeping because he is very conflicted. Something terrible is about to happen to this city that he loves. And he knows it. He knows that its inhabitants, its people are hoping for peace. But he knows that devastation is just around the corner. So he weeps. And this is what he weeps. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when upon you, I'm sorry, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, if weeping is only for women and weaklings and cowards, then why is Jesus weeping? It is because this city is going to be destroyed because her inhabitants have not recognized that the time of the the visitation by the Messiah has come. The time that they had longed for, the peace and the deliverance they had longed for had come to them in this Messiah, but they had not recognized it. Now, as we go further in the text, Luke tells us that, verse 45 of Luke chapter 19, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so the Messiah, Jesus, the deliverer, enters his temple, as verse 45 tells us. Now understand that the temple in Jerusalem had long been the epicenter of Jewish society. If you were a Jew, you knew from small that the temple was the place where God's presence dwelled. You knew about the vow that King David had made way back when, that he would not rest until he had found a place for God to dwell. And so in Psalm 132, verses 3, 4, and 5, David said this, 
He's praying to God and he said, Remember David and all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. That was David's resolve. He would not rest until he had found and created a place, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And so if you were a Jew, you remembered this commitment that David made. You would remember that the temple was the dwelling place of the mighty one of Jacob. You would remember that your priests would occasionally, in fact annually, offer animal sacrifices to God on your behalf for your sins. And then they would tell you whether or not God accepted your sacrifices and forgave your sins. So that place, the temple, was a very important and sacred space. Now if that was the case then, How then could this sacred space have been desecrated by priests and and, uh, scribes who used it to oppress the poor and to marginalize the weak and the foreigner? How could that have been allowed to happen? But here comes Jesus. And Jesus sees it as his vocation to defend the integrity of his house. And so he enters his house, which the priests and rulers are claiming is their space. They have taken it over. Now Luke tells us simply that he entered the temple. But if you read other manuscripts, they'll tell you that he entered the temple of God or the temple belonging to God. And so you can almost feel the rising tension as Jesus enters his house. Now, how many of you remember this 1970s hit song, It's My House and I Live Here? Anyone? Yeah, I see some hands in the back there. Anyone? Can anyone tell me who was the composer and singer of this song? Anyone knows? It's my house and I live here. Doesn't jog anybody's memory? <laughs> All right. Diana Ross was the one who sang that song, a very rhythmic rendition of that song. But Jesus, as he enters his house, he was certainly not going to welcome or put the welcome mat out, as Diana Ross said in the song. And he would certainly not be welcoming the Pharisees to share the same space that he was sharing. He's not going to invite them to move in with me, as the song says. But when he enters his house, something shocking is going to happen. He's going to display his authority, verse 45b, and he began to drive out those who sold, Luke tells us. Now, this is not the gentle Jesus, meek and mild that we learned about in Sunday school, is it? This is a Jesus who is asserting his authority. His authority to defend the integrity of his house. Jesus didn't often get angry, but when he did, it wasn't pretty, and he does get angry here. Why? Because something that he values, something that he considers to be very precious and special, has been violated. And so like two cars that have collided, you're noticing that two agendas are colliding here. 
The Pharisees have an agenda, and their agenda is to merchandise in the temple, to make profit off of people, to oppress people at their own gain, to exclude the weak and the foreigner and the, the poor. But Jesus has a different agenda. His agenda is to show mercy to these very people that are being victimized and oppressed and excluded by the Pharisees. So these two agendas are colliding, and it's not pretty. Jesus drives the Pharisees out of his temple because he's more concerned about the purity of his house than he is about its wealth. Let me say that again. Jesus is more concerned about the purity of his house than its wealth. The Pharisees have it flipped the other way around. And so what is Jesus' view of his house, you ask? It was to be a place of prayer for all ethnos, for all people, all nations. But instead it has become, in his words, a den of robbers. These people were robbing God of the glory that he deserved when his people would seek him prayerfully in his house. So when God's house becomes a place for taking advantage of people for whatever reason, whether it be financial, whether it be emotional or sexual or any other reason, when that happens, we are robbing God of the glory that he deserves in his house. Let me say to us this morning that Jesus will knock over whatever he has to knock over in order to restore the glory of his house. We ought not to be the ones that he has to knock over. We should be willing to bend so that he has glory in his house. And so as Jesus enters his house, he's going to redefine the purpose for his house. Verse 46, saying to them as he drives them out, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. In this verse, Jesus is redefining what he considers to be the purpose of the temple, his house. He's not only quoting from Old Testament scriptures concerning his house, he is saying what it is that he intended for it to be in the first place. He wants to show that he himself is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets had said concerning his house. And so in verses 41 through 46, we see that Jesus' humanity and his divinity are converging. They're coming together in one. In his humanity, he is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. In his divinity, he is asserting his authority to defend his house. And so this is what he tells us, first of all, that his original purpose for his house was for it to be a house of prayer, for all nations, all ethnos, all ethnicities. And so Luke joins Matthew and Mark in quoting Jesus' reference to the temple as a house of prayer. But notice, if you would read Mark, that he comes the closest of the three to the Old Testament prophetic accounts, including the words, for all nations. In other words, uh, Matthew and Luke simply says that my house will be called a house of prayer. But Mark adds the words on for all nations, as did the Old Testament prophets. And so back in Isaiah, the prophet prophesied that the temple of God would offer hope to foreigners, 
who came to it bringing sacrifices upon God's altar. And so let me read Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 through 7, giving you a an Old Testament account of how God uh, perceived his house and how, what he intended for it to be in the first place. So Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 7, God himself saying this through the prophet Isaiah. And the foreigners, notice that the priests were excluding them, but this is what God says. The foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. So these are people who are non-Jews. Foreigners. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. If that wasn't clear enough, then listen to this message that God is going to give to another Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah. I met little Jeremiah this morning, and I told him that I was going to be calling his name in the message. Here it is, Jeremiah. I promised you that, didn't I? So God gave the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah a specific message to give to God's people. And I want you to, let me just unpack this a little bit. So God said to Jeremiah, I want you to stand in the very gates leading to the temple as people are coming into worship. So he would have been standing right outside the doors there. And God wanted him as he stood there to proclaim a specific message to people who were coming into the temple to worship. I want us to pay very careful attention to these words because for some reason, these words are going to reflect the important distinction between how God sees his house and how we often see it. So God says this in verse 9 of Jeremiah chapter 7, reading verses 9 through 11. And this is what Jeremiah was supposed to shout out to the people on God's behalf as they were coming into the temple. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? That's what God asked Jeremiah to shout out to people who were coming to, to church to worship. And so what is God saying? What he's doing is that he's calling out the hypocrisy of people who are coming to church to worship. And then in the surrounding context of Jeremiah chapter 7, he's going to prescribe the cure. So he calls out the hypocrisy and then he says, this is the cure for your hypocrisy. Amend your ways and your deeds. In other words, repent. Amend is God's way of saying repent. Change. Change your heart towards me. Change your mind towards me. Concern yourself with justice. I'm not reading the actual text. I'm just paraphrasing the context for you. Concern yourself with justice. Stop oppressing the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. Stop murdering the innocent. Stop going after other gods and thinking that you will be protected because you come to my house. Repent. In other words, 
change your heart and your mind. Then my house will really offer you the protection that you're seeking for because when you come to my house, you will meet me there. And then I want you to listen to this excerpt from what I consider to be one of the loftiest prayers ever prayed from God's house. And then I'm going to ask one of our teenagers to identify for me who prayed this prayer and what the occasion was. So I'm going to direct you to 1 Kings chapter 8 verses, I'm sorry, verse 41 through 43. This is a prayer that was being prayed from God's temple. And again, teenagers, you're going to tell me who prayed it and why. When a foreigner who is not one of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So who prayed this prayer, and what was the occasion? King Solomon, yes. All right, dedicating the temple that he had built. Great, awesome. And then I want you to listen to God's response to this lofty prayer that Solomon prayed. Because this prayer is going to make abundantly clear to us what God considers his house, the purpose for which he considers his house. It is a, it is to be a house of prayer where all people may seek his face, may be forgiven of their sins, and may receive whatever healing they're seeking, whether it is spiritual, emotional, psychological, or physical. And so in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, God responds to Solomon this way, to his prayer. He says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. And so God couldn't be more serious about his house being a house of prayer and about the fact that when we make it that, he shows up to offer healing, forgiveness, restoration, and whatever it is that we are desperately seeking him for. Secondly, his house must never be contaminated with counterfeit worship. Whatever is counterfeit is not real. It is not genuine. And God desires worship that is sincere. And so Jeremiah delivered this message that God asked him to. But God's people refused to amend their ways. They kept on perverting justice. They kept on going after other gods. They kept on oppressing the powerless. They kept on taking advantage of the widow and the orphan, murdering the innocent, serving other gods during the week, and then coming to the temple on, on Sabbath days, expecting God to show up and bless their counterfeit worship. But God saw through it. He saw that it was unreal. He saw that it was superficial and that it was counterfeit. And so Frank Powell lists these seven signs that you are a counterfeit 
Christian. I'm going to read these seven signs. Try and identify whether any one of them applies to you. Here's the first one. You feel more guilty over missing church than over hurting your neighbor. Second, you believe the Bible is more important than Jesus. Third, you wonder how close you can get to sin without actually sinning. Fourth, you believe it's okay to hold a grudge against someone who has hurt you. Fifth, you believe real Christians would never mix with real sinners. Six, you believe God rests in a building and not in a group of people. Seventh, you think Christianity is more about how much you know than about how much you do. Any of those apply to you this morning? Is our worship genuine? The worship that we just participated in where we sang those very beautiful songs that were so theological, was that worship genuine? Or was it counterfeit? Counterfeit worship is a stench in God's nostrils. Genuine worship is a sweet-smelling savor to him. And so we should desire to participate in what is genuine and not what is counterfeit. And so, so God's people back then continued in counterfeit worship. And so that is, this is why God says to them this in Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11. God says to them this, because you see, God, God can see through facades. He can see through those barriers that we build. He, he knows everything. And I want you to, to, to pay attention to the scripture because God saw through the counterfeit worship that they were bringing, and this is what he says to them. He says, Behold, I myself have seen it. In other words, I can see through what you're doing. I have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh. So he's referring to the original tabernacle. That was where it was first set up in Shiloh. The tabernacle was, the movable tabernacle was the, was emblematic of God's presence. So he says, Go to Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. It was destroyed. He destroyed it because of the evil that they were doing. And now, because you have done all these things, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called to you, you did not answer, therefore I will do to this house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. I will do to you the very same thing as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast all out of your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Now, how is it possible, I ask myself, how is it possible to be the people of God and not hear when God calls? And how is it that God would say of his own people, his own people, that I have seen the evil of my people? And how is it possible to be the people of God but not answer when God calls? How is it possible to be the people of God but put your trust more in a building than in God himself? Here's our final point about God's purpose for his temple. It must be a place where we, as worshipers, hang on Jesus' every word. 
This is what verse 47 and 48 of our text conclude. Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Don't you find it curious that Jesus' words, his teachings, always seem to elicit different responses from his listeners? And so here, as he's teaching, there were some people who were bent on destroying him because he was claiming that he was the temple. He was the fulfillment of everything prophetic about the temple. He would be destroyed and he would be ultimately uh, crucified and in three days he would in fact be raised again. So he was a temple. And so the Jews were offended by this teaching. Isn't it interesting that some people are still offended by the word of God? Others, however, were intrigued by his words. They were hanging on everything that Jesus was teaching. And so like a branch that hangs onto the stem of a tree for its survival, they were hanging on to Jesus as if Jesus' own words were their very survival. Is that how you treat God's words? That you hang on his every word because your survival, your spiritual survival depends upon it. Here's the bottom line of our message. You and I will never be able to worship appropriately until we rediscover prayerful worship. I'm going to make three application points, four application points very quickly. If you're here this morning and you're not yet living a Jesus-centered life, you have not yet surrendered your life to Christ, I want to say to you this morning, I want to challenge you to surrender your life to the God of the house of prayer. You are in it. Surrender to him. Don't make the same mistake of thinking that merely attending church protects you. Your only protection is in acknowledging the one who is indeed the Lord of the temple and acknowledging him as the Lord of your temple, because your temple, the Bible tells us, is a temple, your body is a temple of the living God. And so Jesus wept over Jerusalem because she did not recognize that her destruction was near. Don't let Jesus weep over your destruction. He prefers to rejoice over your salvation. So there are two choices. You can be saved or you can be destroyed. Let Jesus rejoice over your salvation this morning. If you'd like to talk to someone about doing that, please talk to me during the service. If you desire to do that, even now, we will wait to allow you to do that. But please make sure that you surrender your life to the Lord of the temple. Now, if you're already living a Jesus-centered life, if you're already a believer, God says to you, Amend your ways and your deeds. Because, guess what? None of us is perfect. None of us have arrived yet. There is always some amending and straightening out and repenting to do. And so amend your ways is God's way of saying to you, change. Change that behavior. Repent. Change your heart. Change your mind towards God. 
Amend your ways. Stop doing that thing that you're doing now that is dishonoring God even while you claim to be a child of God. Stop robbing God of the glory that he wants from your life and from this temple, from this body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Use your power to seek justice for the powerless, for the widow, for the poor, for the fatherless and the stranger. They're all around you. They're in your neighborhood. They're right here in Greenfield. Use the power that you have through your relationship with Christ and the resources that he has given you. Use your power to seek justice for them. Let your relationships, all of them, whether you're intimate relationships between husband and wife, parent, child, and vice versa. Let all of your relationships be marked by purity and fidelity. Pray for your worship to be genuine and not superficial. If any of these applies to you, then God says, amend your ways. Repent. Here's the third application point. Prioritize prayer in your worship. Now, according to a new uh, Gallup poll, sermons that teach about scripture are the number one reason that Americans go to church. 82% of Protestants and 76% of all regular worshipers consider biblical sermons as a reason why they attend church. They would not go for any other reason than the fact that that church or that pastor is preaching messages that are biblically supported. And so... Biblical preaching has become the mainstay and the hallmark of most churches. However, would you be surprised if I told you that God does not consider biblical preaching as the main, um, the centerpiece of, of his, his church? He really considers prayer as the centerpiece. And so I want in my very first sermon to you this morning to challenge us as a church, and I believe that you're doing this already, and so I want to reinforce this. That we make prayer the central thing that we do at Brown's Chapel. Let's not do anything without first turning to God in prayer. Let's begin every meeting, every every growth group, every home group, every worship service, every meeting with prayer. Not just for the reason of saying that we have checked off the box that we have prayed. But so that we might really put ourselves in dependence upon God and saying, God, if you don't bless this, if you don't do this, if you don't... Help us with this outcome. Nothing will be accomplished. Because when we do that, we're bringing glory to God. Our dependence upon God is bringing him glory because he does it. And he gains the glory from it. Finally, let's be a church where all people matter. If you read through the Gospel of Luke, you'd recognize that over and over again, he is naming people who are considered to be weak, poor, marginalized. Small people, he calls them. So Lazarus and Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus and lepers and prostitutes and tax collectors and widows and prisoners, the lame, the brokenhearted, all of these things are given prominence in Luke's gospel. So I want to ask you this morning, who can you think of who has no place at Brown's Chapel's table? Just because they may not look like us or believe the same way that we believe doesn't mean that God isn't concerned about them and doesn't want them at his table as well. 
I thought it really cool to end the message this way. I visited our website here, and I realized that this is what we have as our mission statement. And so I, I think John should have it on here, right? Yes? So why don't you all stand with me? And I'm going to be hoping that I'm not blocking that. So, because I want us to read that. And it would really be interesting if in the days and weeks ahead, we can really memorize that by heart. So we really believe it and we live this out. And so let's just read this together after the count of two. One, two. We are a congregation of believers committed to sharing the message of Christ and guiding others toward faith in him. As a church, we aim to love those in our community with the same love Christ has given to us. The work of our church is aimed at directing others towards the Savior in the hopes that they will encounter the one true God and be transformed by his gracious love for them. Through all we do, say, and preach, we pray that we will shine the light of Christ to all those we encounter. Let us pray. God, this is our prayer. We acknowledge that we are your people and that we are in your house this morning, this house that is called Brown's Chapel. We desire to be all this to the people around us so that they too might come not only to be a part of us, but to come to know the God that we serve. And so we ask that you would mobilize each one of us, God, to be your hands and feet, your voices, your hands, your lives that you use to touch and to bless and to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. We thank you for doing that. Help us now to depart with these words in our hearts, remembering, God, that this place that is called by your name is a house for all people, a house of prayer that brings you honor and glory. We thank you for doing this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please be seated again and let's continue in the posture of prayer as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. We'll do this by intinction, which means that you will come forward, you'll break a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and partake when we give you those instructions. But on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took the bread and he broke it, which I will do later. And he said, this is my body that was broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and when he had blessed it and given thanks, he says, this is my blood, which was shed for you. As often as you do this, remember me. And so let's just take a few moments to remember what Jesus went through to accomplish what we now enjoy. Let us pray. God, you have asked us to remember your death. You have also asked us to examine ourselves. And God, we don't examine ourselves to, first of all, become perfect before we can partake of these emblems. We examine ourselves so that we can be brought into alignment with you. And so this morning, God, if we have offended you, grieved you, displeased you in any way, we humbly ask for your forgiveness with the confidence that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, purifies us from all unrighteousness. 
We ask God that as we partake of these emblems, that they may nourish not only our bodies, but our souls, that they may strengthen our resolve to serve you. Let this not just be an activity that we do, let it be meaningful to each one of us as we remember what you did on the cross for us. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.